0: This podcast is proudly brought to you by Sky Racing and Indus, number one in its field. News of Lindsay Murphy's impending retirement came as quite a surprise to his friends and colleagues. For a start, he doesn't look old enough to retire. Secondly, he's been an immovable object on Sydney racecourses for many years. The last eight as General Manager of Racecourses for the Australian Turf Club. It all started 42 years ago when Lindsay got a phone call from a childhood mate, Kevin Thompson, who was already working for the Sydney Turf Club. Kevin informed Lindsay a job was coming up and racing mad Lindsay, who was working for the Sydney County Council at the time, just around the corner from the Sydney Turf Club office, made all haste uh, for an interview. Kevin Thompson later left the Turf Club to become a very respected race caller with Radio 2KY. Lindsay stayed on, destined to progress from junior office boy to one of the biggest jobs in Australian racing. Well, Lindsay, it's great to talk to you on the podcast. Thanks for your time.
1: It's lovely to be here, John.
0: You went along for an interview with two men who were both destined to have long careers with the STC. Who were they?
1: Uh, Pat Parker and John Nicholson. And Pat Parker was our CEO at the time, and John Nicholson was the racing manager. Yes, they went on to have um, long careers at the Sydney Turf Club, but they've become lifelong friends of my own, and um, it's been a marvellous association.
0: You were actually earning more money with the Sydney County Council than the Sydney Turf Club was offering, so you needed an understanding wife.
1: I (laughs) did, and I... And I had that. I certainly had that in Bernadette.
0: You hadn't been yeah. married long either, had you?
1: No, we got married in the February and this was the July and um, uh, I'd been about four years at the County Council and being a public service type job, you naturally progress through the ranks and there's always opportunity there. Mm. But I um, spoke to Burnet and said, look, this job's on offer at the Turf Club. Um, I'd love to go for it, but... It's a junior clerk's job. Um, It's going to be a bit less money until we see what happens down the track and not the security of a public service type job. But um, Hmm. she immediately just said, yeah, go for it. Don't be silly. You know, her support was Hmm. unwavering from the start.
0: What were your duties in those very early days?
1: Uh, The first day I started was a Monday, which was great, which happened to be an acceptance day for... Canterbury races on the Wednesday so they sat me down at a desk with a pile of members tickets and horse stall tickets that um needed a date stamp on them so that was my first job <laughs>
0: how inspiring
1: very, yeah it was very inspiring but the day became inspiring in those days trainers and a lot of the press used to come in for acceptances all the time we didn't have the systems we have now yeah and um that was awe-inspiring for me to be sitting there and just see the part of this operation that I was in, and that Mm. was day one. And other duties involved running messages. We didn't have couriers or anything in those days and being in the city, letter needed delivering or whatever. Of course, it fell down to me for that job. And our records in those days, and the whole of the racing office were involved in this, were little cards with a cutout, of the race book details of each horse mm. and and stuck on that card the race yeah. book details and then we'd sort those they were all in alphabetical order when the acceptances were finished you'd have to pull out each horse's card and put them in a pile and they went off to the printer then so he mm. could duplicate that as it went
0: Where did your love of racing come from though Lindsay what was the catalyst
1: Um it's interesting my parents we always had the radio on at home, the old Ken Howard days and always watch Clowns the Clocker on a Saturday morning and so on. And they enjoyed it. My father was a shift worker and if he got the opportunity to be off on a Saturday, we'd go to the races, but the opportunity didn't come up that much. But we're always, I was always listening and watching a replay of something when they rarely came on, but mm. um Love the look of that. I had an uncle, my father's brother, Mm. who was a jockey and he rode up until the war times and so on and then gave away riding but still worked in the stables. He worked for a number of trainers but notably Morris McCartan and virtually finished up his time at Morris McCartan's and Mm. Neville Begg wanted him to go with him when Neville started out on his own but He'd had enough of racing at the time, but I used to go racing with him a bit and go to the stables. Yeah. And I just loved it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You were hooked?
1: Yeah, very much so. No, the colour, the horses, the racing, the people, the buzz. Yeah, and back in those days you're talking massive crowds and, you know, terrible facilities. Nothing like we've got now, but it was just sensational.
0: After about a year in the racing office, you heard that the club's course manager, John Jeffs, had requested an assistant, and you put your hand up.
1: Yeah, well, John approached me and said, Look, I've never had an assistant. I really could do with one, and um, I think you'd fit the bill. I had no idea, uh, one way or the other, to be perfectly honest. I didn't know whether it was going to be a good move, a bad move, or an indifferent move, but um mm. turned out to be a great move. I went out then with John, and um, Went around the two race courses, Canterbury and Rose Hill, just doing various jobs at the time and developed from there.
0: But didn't you do a green keeping course around about the same time? Where did you do that?
1: I did that at the Ride School of TAFE, the horticultural division there at Ride TAFE, and um, that was very interesting. It was different. I was involved in growing grass for a race course, which is totally different to most of the other students there who were on bowling greens or golf courses and so Mm. on. and So we're all treating our grasses totally different, but I did get a lot out of that, and that was a huge foundation for me to go forward.
0: Now, Liz, track maintenance wasn't your only responsibility in those early days with the Turf Club. The club used you in many different (coughs) roles on race days, and uh, I'm looking at the list as we speak. There wasn't much you didn't do. You didn't make sandwiches in the jockey's room. That's about the only one you missed out on.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, the other, I was never the clerk of the course. but. Um, <laughs>
0: <laughs> what did you no, do?
1: No, well, I, probably the first one I got was um, clerk of scales, the first important role, and that was um, amazing. That was an amazing experience dealing with the jockeys and they all have their tricks of the trade to um, make sure they make the weight if they're bit heavier than expected or whatever. So you're dealing with them and you you've got to be strong and handle that. And we don't have the we didn't have then the um systems in place that we've got now. It's all electronic. It's a fantastic foolproof system now. But we had the old Toledo scales that went and yeah, it was an interesting time dealing with the, the different riders. It was fantastic. And then I went to Timekeeper up in the judge's box, which was a another whole different ball game and you get to watch the races perfectly from up the bird's eye view in a box next to your box. Mm, that's right. So yeah.
0: and um yeah,
1: absolutely fantastic. Then I was assistant judge and then progressed to be the judge and um, that was all marvelous. I loved all those race day roles because you're right in the heart of the action and then An opportunity came up a little bit later. We lost our two assistant starters at the club. So um, they approached me and said, would you be assistant starter? I poked around with a few horses at the time. So Mm. I knew a bit about that and um, took on the job of assistant starter. And once again, that was a totally different role. You're on the opposite side of the race course and dealing with totally different situations. But I love that as well. That was um, very eye-opening.
0: Lindsay, not many people realise the tension and the pressure involved with starting a race field with so much money involved and particularly in the big group one races. But, I mean, you'd need eyes in the back of your head. You'd be watching, trying to watch 16 horses at once.
1: Yeah, you do. You look at their legs and then you make sure their heads are straight and um, as soon as you press that button and if you look and watch that field go past you, in pretty much a straight line, you you do get a great feel of satisfaction and that happens each and every race. So it is an ongoing thing. It um, You don't want to see some poor soul left there because their head wasn't straight or whatever that you could have waited and fixed that, you know. So yes, yeah. you are responsible for it all.
0: It's hard to believe 25 years have gone by since Johnny Jeffs retired and he was replaced by Lindsay Davies, who'd been a track manager in Western Australia and it was Lindsay Davies who recommended to the board that you should take over the supervision of the Canterbury track and you actually moved the family into a house across the road from Canterbury Park.
1: Yeah, we lived right on the course actually, which was marvellous. Great, I've got four children and they all grew up there. My eldest one was five when we first moved there And the youngest one was born there. And um, Mm. it's amazing. They had a great life there. We were there for 20-odd years. And, um, you know, there's 100 acres there. It was like them living in the country in the heart of the city. And it was great. And we had a spare block behind us that um, we were able to keep a couple of ponies in all the time. So they always had a pony. And were poking around, and yeah, it was just marvelous to think you're living in Canterbury, but got that lifestyle.
0: When you first went there, there were still several trainers using the track. Now Lynch, let me just throw a few names at you of the ones that I can remember. There was Splinter Duggan. yeah there was Skeeter Hazeldon. Yeah. there was Gary Nixon, there was Lee Curtis was there too. yeah, he there was wants. John Winman, now Colin Vickery, Passed away much too soon uh, at a fairly early age. I don't know that Colin would still be there by the time you moved to Canterbury. Yeah, no, he
1: he was. Still there. Yeah, smart
0: trainer, too. Very clever Uh, trainer. Very
1: great trainer, yeah.
0: And Margaret de Gonneville, who's now up around Port Macquarie somewhere. Margaret was another one of the locals.
1: Margaret was there. She'd just stopped riding. You know, she was one of the pioneers of lady jockeys, and she just stopped riding and was training there. But, no, all those people you mentioned, and they're still great friends. And they, uh they, it was a different kettle of fish, Canterbury. It was a smaller operation. Everyone seemed to get on well. They were still rivals and so on. But some of those blokes you mentioned there, like Skeeter Hazleton, you wouldn't find a bigger character and a likeable rogue than him. He was um, <laughs> sensational. But there were some... Really great trainers there. Ronnie McDonald. of course, Norm Munsey was um, mm. riding work there all the time and he linked up with Colin Vickery and Ronnie McDonald, and they had some great horses that they were able to set to get a get a few dollars out of. They um, mm. knew exactly what they were doing.
0: Do you remember a filly called Currency Bell? I
1: remember it very well. My brother <laughs> actually worked with one of the part owners of it. Yeah. And... Well- um, he was telling him, he thinks, geez, this horse will be a chance and its um, first start and um, it happened to be scratched the first time and then the next time it was due to have its first start at Warwick Farm. Mm. We looked in the paper, it was 100 to 1 and they said, this is a chance and we were going to Warwick Farm races that day. Mm. We said, we'll never see a poor day again and lo and behold, it, I think they bet 8 to 1 in the end and yeah. one with its head on its chest, yeah.
0: Yeah, Norm Munsey was the jockey. I think she bounced straight to the front, trained yep. by Ron McDonald and was never going to get beaten.
1: No, that's right. And then it, down the track she had a brother race, Currency Bow. He wasn't quite as good as her, but he was quite handy as well.
0: Mm. Lynn, you mentioned the late, great Norm Munsey, father of Sky Racing's Glenn Munsey. Yep. All of the trainers we've mentioned relied heavily on Norm's experience and his tremendous judgment in assessing whether or not any of the horses at Canterbury could win a race, uh, Munns exactly. would look after them. He'd ride them, work. He'd get there in the dark sometimes. <laughs> yeah, all the time. <laughs> but he'd know where they had to go to win. He he was a terrific judge.
1: I uh, was an expert, John. Um, he was um, left left a big impression on me, Norm Munsey. He was. You wouldn't have found a nicer person. And as a judge and to work in with those blokes and make sure to help, he knew a lot of those blokes were just battling along and so on. So he helped them to make sure that if they were trying to get a quid, well, he'd be the, you know, he'd do the right thing by them in that. And as far as a judge, yes, he was the best by far. He was um, the only one you'd turn to there to get a proper assessment and so on. He knew exactly what was happening and where they should go.
0: Norm lost his life under tragic circumstances in a fishing accident uh, when he was swept off the rocks at La Perouse. And uh, that is 14 years ago, Lindsay, in, in case yeah. you're wondering.
1: Time flies. I eh? That's incredible. Yeah, I remember it well. I was driving home from, uh, I'd been down to the Wagga Cup, but it was the day morning. I got the phone call that Norm had been swept off the rocks and I thought, oh, my God, like, I couldn't comprehend it because you wouldn't find a more thorough, a safer, uh, more efficient. His riding gear, everything was just impeccable. He checked everything three times, Norm, and Mm. the same, and the same with his fishing. He had his safety shoes on. He had his vest. He had everything Mm, on, and tragically, he loses his life. It was um, an amazing thing. Norm was actually instrumental in myself and Bernadette and the family going up to Grafton for the. Cup Carnival every year, and he used to go up fishing and stay at the Amber and go to the carnival. And he said, you should do this, you should do it. So we went up one year that and had two children at the time. They were yeah. small, and we've done it every year since. So we've done it for the last 35 years, which has been marvellous. And we used to go fishing, and where we stay at the Amber, there's rocks out the front, and you can fish off it. and it's fairly calm. But ever since Norm lost his life, I won't go near it.
0: No, I understand. He was a true gentleman of the turf and oh. missed by many to this day.
1: Yeah, no, his wife Anne still around everywhere and, you know, still takes an active role with all of Norm's old mates and that's a marvellous relationship they build up and, as you say, Glenn's very heavily involved.
0: When the Sydney Turf Club decided to close Canterbury Park as a training venue – they offered to relocate those trainers to Rose Hill, but Linz, it really was the end of an era. Some moved to Rose Hill, others gave it away.
1: Yeah, no, it was it was a it was an interesting decision at the time. Um, when we were rebuilding the track, the plan was to put in a new training track on the inside, and so on and go. But a couple had moved temporarily while the rebuild was on and everything like that and they indicated well look this suits us where we are now we won't come back and so on so we realized we were going to be building this track for about 50 horses at the most and um Mm -hmm. you know that wasn't commercially viable so we said look it's silly we shouldn't be doing it Mm -hmm. we'll help these trainers relocate and go but yeah it was the end of an era when training stopped it was a shame Mm -hmm. and um yeah we did lose some characters
0: Canterbury Park has been transformed from the worst wet weather track in Sydney to arguably the best. I remember the days when Canterbury meetings would be called off at the drop of a hat.
1: Yes, no, it's incredible. It did um, have a terrible reputation, the The track itself. It took no rain whatsoever in the early days. And we had a situation, I remember well, we had a, a wet spell um at the time and we'd position the barriers. The 1200 metre chute became an absolute bog, and we'd go and we'd position the barriers and we had the big heavy barriers at the time too, which didn't help the situation, but we'd go to get them on the track and where they bogged, that became where the race was starting from that day Mm. up in the chute and um, we'd make our best endeavour to get it to the 1200 starting point, but it didn't fit inevitably bog, and we'd go and then I'd have to go in and tell Pat Parker our um, 1,200 metre races today are going to be 1,160 or whatever. Mm. And, you know, everyone accepted that, but by jeez, I've never seen things as wet as it was. No. It was incredible. Mm.
0: You oversaw a huge rebuilding and drainage project on the course proper, which has stood the test of time. Now, Lynn, you virtually ripped it up and started again
1: yeah no we went totally down to the subgrade lindsay davies was um my boss at the time he had um good experience in all that field and he had a building background as well before he moved to the race courses and we knew the only solution was to go right from the bottom and start again and give it a, a whole new profile through the situation and and that's what we did, went down to the subgrade, new drainage layer, new soil, hmm. and the turf on top. And it's been fantastic for the last 20 odd years now.
0: The most crucial part of the restoration was the consistency of the soil profile itself. Every truckload of soil that went onto that track had to be of the same quality.
1: Exactly, yeah. We were mixing it on site and then um, blending there. And then the trucks would go on and we had a one of our staff take a sample out of those trucks and go and test them that the particle sizes were the same, the consistency was there, that um, a couple of tests that he put them all through that were fairly quick tests and then we'd do some more in-depth testing down the track, but just to ensure that everything was the same because one of the things with race courses that have happened over the years as they've been developed over – You know, 100 years, some might be there and never be touched. Well, one part will be heavy clay, the next will be sand, the other part will be this, and, yeah, we avoided that.
0: The Canterbury refurbishment came not long after a similar restoration at Rose Hill, but they didn't do the whole circuit at Rose Hill. They did about three-quarters of it.
1: Yeah, that's right. They realigned the 1,200-metre chute, mm. which needed realigning. It was too tight as you got to about the 800 there and came out of the chute. So that was realigned. The track was raised around the home term but only rebuilt virtually from the 1,100 to the winning post, and then the rest is still the old track as it was.
0: Mm. Are there plans to finish that job?
1: Look, um, it's performing well at the moment, and you, you don't realise if um, anybody didn't know, they'd never know that there was um, a different track there. They it's, it's blended in well, and the consistency is pretty good. But um, as all these tracks now, I think we realise there's a, a lifespan on them all, and um, once that happens, we'll rebuild all the tracks progressively as time goes by.
0: Mm. Lenz, I'll get you to stand by. We're going to pause for a quick break on the podcast. Back after this. The sale that has produced the likes of The Autumn Sun, Merchant Navy, Esther Russian Revolution, Moss Fun, Pinot, and Flying Artie in recent years has again attracted a stunning catalogue for 2019. The Australian Easter Yelling Sale catalogue is now available online and its depth and quality is again without peer in the Southern Hemisphere's Yearling Sale season. Among this year's spectacular Easter catalogue of 450 yearlings are 39 siblings to Group 1 winners like the Autumn Sun, Merchant Navy, Sunlight, Lankan Rupee, Brazen Bow, Shoals, Faulkner, Star Spangled Banner, Catchy, Dundeal, I Victory, Lucky Bubbles, Shooting to Win, She Will Reign, Seamus Award and Pino. There is also the progeny of 34 Group 1 winning mares such as Hasna, River Dove, Pear Tart, Our Egyptian Rain, Rostova, Steps in Time, Brazilian Pulse, Provocative, Headway, and Dizel. The 2019 English Easter Yearling sale is just bursting with quality. Look for the catalogue online. My special guest is Lindsay Murphy who recently announced his retirement after 42 years in the Sydney racing industry. The Kensington track at Randwick has finally earned its stripes after a couple of abject failures. What were the problems at the first couple of attempts?
1: Look, the, the probably the way it was built initially, um, without being critical of anyone who's, attempted to do it and go that it was all done with the best intentions but it never really settled and consolidated and raced the way you'd like it to race and um so there were issues there from the outset the poor old kensington track was um up against its own issues prior to that in the fact that it was an inner track and known as an inner track so it was always a second-class citizen, really, mm. and and punters just saw it as that second-class citizen, so it didn't have a great acceptance and then it didn't perform to the standard that you'd want from a city track, so um, recently then we saw the only option again was a very similar procedure to what we undertook at Canterbury and go back to the base, rebuild it up and mm. go from there.
0: Well, it certainly gets the thumbs up nowadays, doesn't it? Everybody in the industry is a rap for the Kenzo track.
1: Look, it's performed very well. Um, we couldn't be happier with it the way it's come back. It's great. And I do believe it'll, it'll actually improve as time goes by, as all these tracks tend to do. It'll consolidate more and I think it'll just continue to race as well as it is. So that becomes a huge asset to Sydney Racing to have that Extra track on hand, we we race 114 times a year, so to spread that wear and tear, it gives you the opportunity to give the other tracks a, just a small break where you can mm. do a bit of rejuvenation on them. Whereas prior to that, they never got a break.
0: Lindsay, you you were running through some figures for me the other day about the horse populations at uh, the three major Sydney tracks, and I think a lot of people will be surprised at some of these figures. Warwick Farm, firstly.
1: Yeah, Warwick Farm. There's um, around seven hundred, just over seven hundred horses in work there, which is massive, and um, it's a it's a huge training operation. And Warwick Farm is a little limited in space now. It, it did have paddocks over the road that were able to be utilised for. A lot of slow work and through the bush and everything, but that land since been sold off and there's industrial estate in there now, so mm. we lost that. So the actual space on the course and the number of training tracks is quite limited, but it copes really well with that number. And, um, yeah, well, you can see a lot of success coming out of Warwick Farm, so it hasn't affected anyone.
0: No, and there are more horses trained <clears throat> at the farm than there are at Randwick.
1: That's right. Randwick's around the 600 mark. And once again, we've put in a new synthetic training track there to replace the dirt. The dirt was well accepted and um, still a number of trainers would have preferred to have kept the dirt. But mm. we believe in the wet weather and it also performs really well in the dry weather, the synthetic track will do a much better job than that. So mm. 600 horses there are well accommodated. Like I think you're right in the heart of the city virtually with 600 horses. All stabled around there, and virtually um, Tullick Lodge is the only block of stables that aren't on the course now.
0: Mm. Now, here's a surprise: Rose Hill caters for less <coughs> than the other two tracks. Yeah,
1: it does, and that's more as a result of what's happened with the land around Rose Hill. Once upon a time, we had six, seven hundred horses in work at rose hill with a hell of a lot of top trainers at the time the, the premiership winners were there then and the situation was different but in that time all those horses were trained off the course there um all the stables were over in oak street and hassle street and off the back of those and so on and it was amazing and then that land got redeveloped there was a um zoning change to it so that land became worth a hell of a lot more to developers than to horse trainers but the STC at the time saw that well we can't just let this go because um, we need the horse population to provide the racing that we're after Mm -hmm. so they took over the old ledger car park and built you know 40 stables at first and then that was a success and then went to 80 and we've got 400 boxes in there now on that ledger car park site and that's where all the training comes from there's no horses whatsoever off course now they all come from those 400 boxes
0: and that's the total 400 at rose hill yep
1: that's it we we are looking if there is a possibility we could found a bit of land that. It's going to take a bit of work to do it, to build another hundred boxes there. The tracks have cope with the with another hundred and there's a demand for them. But, um, yeah, there's a fair bit of expense involved in building that extra hundred boxes.
0: Your favourite jockeys over the years, you used to talk in glowing terms of Ron Quinton.
1: Yeah, I always have and always will. And he was just... Great. And when I was involved on the scales and those things, you see these the stars and they were the ones that were absolutely no trouble. They just got about their business fully professional and go. And you saw that in his writing. He won his jockeys premierships because of his consistency and just kept going, whether it be for Neville Begg or Tommy Smith or whoever, he just kept getting the job done and seeing yeah. it Cook- now in his training.
0: Peter Cook was another favorite. I know Kevin Langby was one of your favourites, Darren Beedman, Jimmy Cassidy, and several others.
1: Yeah, no, it's quite amazing. And um they are great and they're there. But I honestly believe there's a struck match between them, to be honest. And hmm. you know, they are all champion jockeys and they keep getting it done and week in, week out. But I think there's very little between, and, you know, put it very much in commas, the second string rank of jockeys who also ride so consistently and constantly. And uh, given the right horse, they'll do the job as well. There's um, very little between them.
0: Your favourite trainer, perhaps, was the bloke who preferred to keep a low profile and who had an aversion to the media.
1: Yes, Jack Denham was. Um, I just admired how he got about his business. He'd left Canterbury when I started. He originally trained at Canterbury, had a big team there. Um, But he'd left uh, just before I started and had gone to Rose Hill. And then he was training for Stan Fox. Took over that stable, which was a massive operation and something totally different for Jack. But he just kept getting the results. But he always just seemed to know when the horse was ready and when today's the day and have it peak on the right day or the day that he needed to peak for a big race and so on. And to me, I think that's a very fine art. Trainers can train a horse and keep punching them along and go and send them around. But if you know exactly when they're right and when they're ready, well, that's a huge asset. Mm. And a great bloke too, Jack. I I found him terrific.
0: There was a funny incident uh, that you talk about at one of the very early night meetings at Canterbury. Not that it seemed funny at the time.
1: Now it could have been a, a huge tragedy. Actually, it was um, one of the very early night meetings, as you say, and um, the race had just ended, and horse dumped its rider on pulling up, and an ambulance had just driven through a gate and hadn't shut the gate as yet, and the horse darted out and off and took off out onto the road. Which, oh my God, it was a Thursday night, Thursday night shopping happening, and next thing it's heading down Canterbury Road and uh, so we jumped in the car chasing it had no idea where it was or we we knew it had gone the direction towards Campsie, but um, we're driving along and there's people walking along the street and we're calling out have you seen the horse seen a horse and they're all shrugging their shoulders and so on I thought well they must have and so next thing a police car raced past us and went into a lighting shop there was a big lighting warehouse there Mm. And go. And so that's good. So I said, Oh, they must have been on the radio and they've found it and they've wheeled in there. So they've wheeled into this lighting warehouse. So I've driven in right behind them and I, Have you found our horse? He said, What are you talking about, you idiot? There's an armed <laughs> hold up going on here. <laughs> God bless me. So we backed out as quick as we could and continued down Canterbury Road. Beamy Street's the main road of Canterbury, of Campsie. Yeah. We drove past it. We thought it had kept going, but apparently someone then indicated to us, no, nah, turn right onto Beamy Street. So we went back and along Beamy Street, and then they said, no, nah, it's down behind what they call the top pub. And down in that street, and here's the horse, the bloke from the house had hold of it, but it was just standing in the front yard having a nice quiet pick. And the <laughs> bloke, bloke came out of the pub as we went past, because the horse still had its saddle on, saddlecloth and everything. He'd been sitting at the window, saw the horse go by, and he come out, and he said, I just backed that. (laughs) (laughs) there it was running past him in the pub. I think he thought it was time to go home.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Now, the horse's name, I think, adds to the story.
1: Yeah, Murphy's Law. You wouldn't (laughs) believe it, but – but it certainly was Murphy's law, and yeah, very much. But no, it was amazing. But yeah. fortunately, ended in a good way. We kept the horse on the gentleman's front lawn, and we called for a float, and the float came up, picked it up, took it home. No harm done. Everything yeah. was fine, but very fortunate.
0: He couldn't have been much good, Lynch. He never <laughs> got a scratch.
1: No, no, that's right. He won a few races, but Did he? Um, yeah, yeah. Kenny Rose owned him, but um, yeah. It was just amazing how he was able to do it.
0: You and I have had discussions about the talents of Kingston Town and up until very recently, he stood alone as your all-time favourite.
1: Yeah, no doubt. um, Through those early 80s and so on, a a great time. I, I started at the club in 77 and then next thing, Kingston Town came along and you see what he could do and just the aura of the horse he had a he had a complete aura about him beautiful black horse and go and um i was at rose hill the day he had his first start and went very ingloriously and then back when he at canterbury it was his first start one and then yep um yeah his first win was then back at rose hill the midweeker and um You thought, oh, well, there you go. That horse has gone better. Not thinking anything. But then as time Mm -hmm. goes on, the versatility of him, the fact of, you know, racing over distances that weren't suitable to him early but then he could stay and then he could sprint. You know, Mm -hmm. he was just marvellous and to win three Cox plates was incredible at the time and, yeah, he was amazing.
0: But he's no longer your favourite.
1: No, he has been surpassed. There's no two ways about it. And it's interesting with these things. You generally look back on them 20 years time and say, oh yeah, no. Now that you think about it and you look back at that record, but no, he's been surpassed by Winks. um, Her performances have um, just leave me um, tingling every time. It's quite amazing. And yeah, what she's done and the way she's done it and she's overcome. A lot of adversity in some of her wins, and uh, it's been absolutely amazing. But uh, now nah, she's the best I've seen.
0: Lins, that brings to a close part one of our interview. We're going to uh, get ready to present part two, and uh, in that one we'll touch on several other aspects of your very fulfilling and rewarding life in the racing game. The sale that has produced the likes of the Autumn Sun, Merchant Navy, Esterjarb, Russian Revolution, Moss Fun, Pinot and Flying Artie in recent years has again attracted a stunning catalogue for 2019. The Australian Easter Yearling Sale catalogue is now available online and its depth and quality is again without peer in the Southern Hemisphere's Yearling Sale season. Among this year's spectacular Easter catalogue of 450 yearlings are 39 siblings to Group One winners like the Autumn Sun, Merchant Navy, Sunlight, Lankan Rupee, Brazen Bow, Shulls, Faulkner, Star Spangled Banner, Catchy, Done Deal, Victory, Lucky Bubbles, Shooting to Win, She Will Reign, Seamus Award, and Pino. There is also the progeny of 34 Group 1 winning mares such as Hasna, River Dove, Pear Tart, Our Egyptian Rain, Rostova, Steps in Time, Brazilian Pulse, Provocative, Headway, and Dizel. The 2019 English Easter Yearling sale is just bursting with quality. Look for the catalogue online.